You know it's cold and lonely in these deep dark nights I can see paradise by the dashboard lights Oh, hello. Uh, first of all, I'm both sorry for that, but also you're welcome for that, depending on where you live and where your head's at and how fucking cold it is wherever you live. It's been a while since we posted a podcast. Over the break, my family and I got hit with the COVID bug. So I did what any respectable community member would do in this situation. Sifted through Twitter, going down COVID rabbit holes, reading tweets that provided zero value to my life. I also did find the courage to send a few self-righteous tweets with half-baked opinions about things I know very little about. Lastly, I tweeted, then deleted, several even more half-baked opinions that had the tone of a drunken conspiracy theorist. So, all in all, just your standard run-in-the-mill Christmas. I'm still trying to get my taste back, but my brothers assure me I had no taste to begin with. I was fortunate, however, to have read a book by author Michael Schellenberger, recommended to me by Edmonton's Chief of Police, Dale McPhee. The book is called San Francisco, why progressives are running, why progressives are ruining cities. I suppose they're running them while they're ruining them. It posits that progressive policies around homelessness, inequality, and crime are making those cities that progressives control, I think LA, uh, Seattle, Portland, San Francisco, worse and not better. Schellenberger is actually a progressive himself based in San Francisco. The book's subtitle does, obviously, have a political bend to it, but Schellenberger is cautious to note that it is not only progressives that ruin cities, nor that they never save them. Schellenberger believes that the real problem is an ideology that designates some people by identity or experience as victims entitled to their destructive behaviors, i.e. addiction, which erode the fundamental values cities and civilization itself rest upon. It's a thought-provoking read, and I would love you to check it out and let me know what you think. Today's podcast is something I've actually never done before. Two guests. Well, that's not entirely true. I did record a podcast a while back with two guests. They'll remain nameless. We shared one too many bourbons, and it quickly devolved into a diluted conversation about the merits of parking tickets. It's unerrable. Mr. Tom Wolf appeared prominently in San Francisco, and I was impressed with what he said and also so pleased he agreed to join me on this episode of Confronting the Madness. Tom is a recovery advocate in San Francisco. He is a formerly homeless heroin addict who lived on San Francisco's streets for six months in 2018. I also asked Chief Dale McPhee to join us, and he graciously agreed. It's Chief's second time on the podcast, so please remind me I need to send him a Confronting the Madness bobblehead for joining this distinguished group, because I know there's nothing more he wants on his desk than a bobblehead of my face looking at him every single day. During this episode, we talk about homelessness, addiction, mental illness, drug policy, housing policy, policing, and politics, a few small subjects. 
we draw on Tom's experiences in San Francisco to help us consider what type of policies our cities in Canada's Canada should think about adopting. It's 2022, and now I bring to you Mr. Tom Wolf and Chief Dale McPhee. in progress. Mr. Tom Wolf, Chief of Police, Dale McPhee, welcome to Confronting the Madness. Tom, pleasure to meet you. Just by way of background, I had heard about you as I was reading a book by Michael Schellenberger called San Francisco, Why Progressives Ruin Cities, uh, political statement there. Michael Schellenberger is a progressive and has been very active in the progressive scene up until I think he had an aha moment as it related, relates to housing first. And, and the book effectively talks about how progressives have claimed that they knew how to solve homelessness, inequality, and crime. Um, but in the cities that they control, uh, progressives have made these problems worse. That's his thesis. And uh, you featured prominently in the book, obviously. Um, and maybe if, if you don't mind just telling the listeners a little bit about your story. Okay, well, Mark, thank you so much for having me here, Dale. It's a pleasure to meet you, sir. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm, I was so pleased to be asked to be in San Francisco and be interviewed and meet Michael Schellenberger, uh, because like so many people that are in recovery, I've got a story, and uh, you know, my story begins in early 2015. I went into the hospital to have surgery on my foot. I had some problems with my foot where they had to actually break it and reset it and insert a couple of titanium screws in it. Uh, and they sent me home from the hospital in a walking boot with crutches and a 30-day supply of 10 milligram oxycodone for the pain. Uh, not Percocet, which is cut with Tylenol and all that. It was pure 10 milligram oxycodone for the pain. And uh, over the next 10 days, I started abusing uh, my prescription. Instead of taking just 10 milligrams at a time, I started taking two. Um, because when I took that 10 milligrams, I obviously, you know, it helped with the pain, but I got a little bit loopy too. Mm -hmm. uh, so I took two and I got high. Uh, but uh, kind of when I, I hit that, the pinnacle is when I took three pills all at once, when I hit that 30 milligram threshold, uh, I felt kind of euphoric. I felt a euphoria. All my problems went away, any marital problems I was having, any, any financial problems I was having, any pain that I had was gone uh, and life was good. And uh, so I continued to abuse those drugs until I started running out after about 10 days. It was supposed to last me a month. So as I started running low, I started cutting back. And when I started cutting back, I started not feeling very good. Mm -hmm. I was getting the sweats. Uh, I was getting the chills. I was feeling pain. Uh, but the biggest thing is that I was obsessing about mm -hmm. the drug mm -hmm. all yeah. the time, thinking about how I could get more. Uh, and that, you know, later on, I realized that that was being dope sick, right? Being mm -hmm. in withdrawal. So I actually, you know, tried to get more from the pharmacy, from my doctor, but I couldn't because it had only been a week and a half. Uh, so I actually went on the internet and I said, you know, I Googled up, where can I buy pills on the street in San Francisco? And it took me to YouTube, uh, where I found several different, uh, news stories about pill Hill, which is, uh, the corner of golden gate and Leavenworth in the tenderloin neighborhood of San Francisco. And I proceeded to drive down there one day with the boot on my foot 
And I uh, got there and I'm sitting there limping around on crutches, literally on the street. And there were like six guys standing on the corner offering a variety of different pills for sale from mm-hmm. uh, Opana's and Percocets all the way up to 80 milligram OPAD oxycodone pills. And I started purchasing them off, off the street for about $30 a pill. And over the next two years, that uh, addiction progressed. So when I was at the peak of my addiction, I was using 560 milligrams of oxycodone per day. So I was taking seven 80 milligram oxycodone tablets daily. Oh. If you took that amount now, you would die. You would mm-hmm. be dead. But mm-hmm. you know, a, a, not only is addiction a progressive disease, but oxycodone also you build up tolerance to it. So I needed more in order to maintain that feeling that I had. And if I stopped or cut back, I went into withdrawal. So I was already stuck at that point. Uh, and during that time, you know, I went back to work. I was still functioning as an addict at work, going to my mm-hmm. job. Um, but, uh, I also started hiding the debt and the bills and the money from my wife. Mm -hmm. Uh, and the, the big thing is I stopped paying the mortgage and I started using the money that I was getting from my job to just buy drugs. Mm -hmm. And, uh, one day the levy broke in, um, 2017, it was around uh, Easter time around April of 2017. I didn't intercept the mail that one day, that one fateful day. And my wife did. And there was a foreclosure notice from the bank on our house. Wow. Uh, because I hadn't paid the mortgage in about six months. Um, so that's when the levy broke. I was cut off from all my money, everything. Uh, my wife was freaking out. Our whole family fell into crisis mode at that point because we had a foreclosure notice sitting with us and my wife's asking what the hell is going on? What happened to all the money? Um, and that around that time is when I made the fateful decision to switch over to heroin uh, because a block down from Golden Gate and Leavenworth, you can purchase heroin on the street for as little as $10 for an eighth of a gram. Of, uh, of heroin. And I switched. And when I switched to that, that's when my life personally actually spiraled even deeper. Uh, I actually started going to work um, high. I started shooting up in the bathroom on my lunch break. Uh, and then pretty soon I just stopped going to work. Uh, I was just sitting at home getting high all day long on heroin. And, uh, you know, my wife kind of had an idea what was going on. All I'll say about that is that denial is a really strong thing. I had been mm-hmm. married to my wife at the time for you know, 18 years, 19 years. So family man with two kids, two small kids, they were uh, eight and uh, 11, uh, no, excuse me, nine and 11 at the time. And, uh, you know, denial is a powerful thing. My wife didn't want to believe that this guy that had, we, she'd made a life with had fallen into addiction and had bankrupted us basically mm-hmm. um, because of my addiction. From there, you know, the, the, the last straw was one night I snuck out of the house at two o'clock in the morning. I stole some cash out of my wife's purse that I think she was going to use for groceries, mm-hmm. hopped into the car, drove down to the tenderloin. Um, and I didn't come home for 11 days. I went on an 11 day bender out there. And, uh, finally one day the police came knocking on my window of my car. I rolled down the window. I had needles and foil and straws all over my car. I was filthy. And they said, hey, are you Thomas Wolf?" And I said, yes. And they said, okay, your wife filed a missing persons report on you. You need to go home. They didn't arrest me. They actually just told me to go home. So I started up the car and I drove home. And my wife was waiting for me with a packed bag saying, you either need to go to rehab right now. I got you a treatment bed or you need to get out. And at that very moment, I was in withdrawal. And I said, I'm not ready. And I walked, I walked out and I chose heroin and I chose my addiction over my family. And it wasn't really a choice, man. Mm-hmm. I, I was sick this disease um but that's what it does to you it makes you make those kinds of decisions so that's what led to my homelessness well thank you for sharing and um i want to get into the tenderloin a little bit deeper um with you but maybe chief 
you and I have had a number of conversations. You've been on this podcast before. <clears throat> and, you know, what we've seen in the United States, particularly on the West Coast, has been a number of progressive policies. And, you know, for me, I'm interested in health and the psychology of individuals and society. And that's what I want to keep this conversation about. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm hesitant to use the word progressive because it has a ideological connotation to it. But there's this notion of pathological altruism. And I, I think that's what's going on here uh, in a lot of our communities. And, and I'm just going to read this um, definition where it's says behavior in which attempts to promote the welfare of another and or others that results instead in harm that an external observer would conclude was reasonably foreseeable. We're now living in a society with all carrots and no sticks. And there's a number of factors that have uh, led to where we are now that we can get into if you want from societal perspective, uh, George Floyd, Black Lives Matter, etc. But just want to uh, get your your perspective, Dale, on Edmonton's perspective, where we are now as a city, uh, and juxtapose it as to where San Francisco is, Seattle is, Portland is, Los Angeles is, uh, because seemingly policies like Housing First, uh, which have been incredibly expensive, I think San Francisco spent $2 billion over the course of 10 years, $666,000 per home for 3,000 units. And the, the results are getting, are, are, the outcomes are getting worse. So what, what are your thoughts on, on the current state of affairs in Edmonton, Dale? And, and how does Tom's story uh, resonate with you? Yeah, I mean, I mean, Tom's point, I mean, the proof's in the pudding, he's lived it. And, uh, you know, for me, uh, having worked in this environment, not just as a, as a police officer and a police chief, and then having looked at the, the data on this in government and having traveled and speaking to us across the world is we forget that there's individuals in this space and we jump to what we think the conclusion is. And in this case, you mentioned housing first, if it's a house, there's a lot of steps. And I think Tom's experience could probably relate to this about other things that had to be taken care of first. And Tom just articulated as well as it can't be no rules. I mean, obviously you have to be aware of what the individual and the trauma and everything that the individual has gone through in each individual case. But this isn't a one thing fits all. It's a continuum of services that you need within your community to actually do this. And what we're seeing now, um, it seems like San Francisco and some of the cities, and I was on a major city chiefs, uh, call yesterday which is all the large uh, American chiefs and nine Canadian chiefs and talking about how this is all now spun out of control because everybody went into the far extreme of this got into defund got into all these things and it's just snowballed and it's the gains that they had in some of the areas that they had have went back five and seven years now and San Francisco is a bit ahead of this now, and largely because of what Tom is doing, some of the work he's doing, some of the work that the book is doing is getting ahead and saying, we have to find a different way. There needs to be rules. There needs to be accountability. In this particular case, I think you've seen exactly what we've done in the Edmonton Police Services. In a case like Tom's, taking him to jail isn't going to help, but maybe connecting him to services and getting him the help and taking advantage of the opportunity. And 
some of the things that we're doing in that space at Edmonton right now is one of the new announcements that we had just two and a half weeks ago, which was already had across the province 50 uptakes is giving the medical uh, practitioners the ability to give sublocate and suboxone right in our DMUs, that's our cell blocks. These are medical treatments. These are proven things. That's not what uh, Tom is articulating and others are articulating like safe supply. The, the open drug use, I mean, you take that and you look and you look at that in our LRT and you look at some of that and some of all the gangs and stuff or some of the shelters where we're getting people crying for help. If you just jump and say this is the ultimate solution and you think you're going to take an attic off, off the street as Tom's articulated and put them directly into a house without those other steps and mechanisms supports in place, it's not going to end well. And, and Tom's just articulated that in, in less than five minutes, but yet we get these uh, positions largely uh, some of its activism some of its progressive that's fair like at the end of the day is you know safe consumption for a point in time is important but not with all the other things in place it just like how it's just the house if you're going to take somebody that's in crisis in an attic and you're just going to give them a house there's a good chance that they probably might overdose in that house there's a whole bunch of things which I think Tom uh, really is the living proof of this. And when you get to that recovery oriented system, for me as a police chief, that means that you have multiple doors and multiple services available and you only use the criminal justice system. And I've used the languages, you know, jail the people we're afraid of and not the ones we're mad at. You need that whole partnership between law enforcement and public health to deal with the front end of this upfront early police are called anyway they're going to these calls tom just articulated missing person who goes to that place mm -hmm. trouble with person who goes to that place this is the role but having options up front actually changes the space and starts to reduce your numbers but again we go to these blanket systems that don't look at the individuals that are in the crisis yeah and, and tom s speak about if you would the state of San Francisco, and you've obviously are in recovery now. And maybe you could even talk about, you know, how police intervened and um, helped you get to the point you're at today. But also maybe talk about some of the policies that San Francisco uh, has implemented, specific to, to Housing First as more of an ideological or dogmatic practice, and, and why it, it, it doesn't work. And, and what you see and what the work you're doing is as an advocate to help support those people who, you know, by and large have addiction and or mental health issues. You know, I, I read the book, we've done, had a number of conversations and the word homelessness is this front for something that is much more complex than that. Well, homelessness, first of all, is a euphemism. And I think Michael Schellenberger said that in his book mm -hmm. uh, as a way to kind of Turn, turn people away from using terms like bomb or vagrant or zombie, which are terms that we shouldn't use because they're stigmatizing to people that are on the street. But saying someone is homeless is only like telling a half truth. Yes, they're homeless. Okay. But why are they homeless? And that's where it starts getting murky and muddled and all that, because right now the, the prevailing narrative in San Francisco and in most of the United States, to be quite frank, at least on the coast anyway, is that it's a poverty issue. It's a housing issue. Yet there are, there are tent cities and tent encampments in places like Indiana and West Virginia where rent is 500 bucks a month for an apartment. So, and there's plenty of apartments. So it's not necessarily a housing issue. It's also a drug crisis. It's an untreated mental health crisis. 
Um, and there's just not enough services out there to accommodate everybody. You know, San Francisco has 11,300 permanent supportive housing beds or, or units oh. in San Francisco, and they're adding another 3,000. But there's anywhere between eight and 17,000 homeless people in San Francisco today, right now. Okay. Mm. And based on my experience, and people will disagree with me, but based on my experience of living on the street, eight out of every 10 was struggling with addiction or untreated mental illness or a combination of both. Right. Um, so even if we build those 3,000 units of housing in the next couple of years, well, we only house 3,000 of that eight to 17,000. What about the other? five to five to 14,000 that are still out there, number one, uh, how long is it going to take? So what happens to the people in the interim while they're waiting for that housing to come online? They just sit there on the street in a tent and they continue to use, they, their mental illness gets worse because there's a lack of services. So this is where, you know, in the book, Schellenberger talks about it. We started this thing called the California Peace Coalition in California, where, you know, we're advocating for a statewide addiction and mental health treatment system. This is one area where socialized medicine is going to have to be in the United States, uh, just because of there, there's 165,000 people homeless in the state of California. And if 80% of them are struggling with addiction or mental illness, you need to have a real system of care that's available that can offer treatment on demand for those folks to get them services and get them help. Uh, can it be through jail? It, you know, there is a pathway for jail for some, because like I've said this before, look, there's a subset of people on the street that require intervention. Some of them require intervention by law enforcement. Some of them require intervention by homeless outreach teams and street crisis response teams, but there's a subset. And that subset is growing, especially in San Francisco. I was walking down the street in the Tenderloin yesterday doing outreach. And there was a woman, she was about five feet tall, sitting there on the street, not doing anything, clearly homeless. She could barely speak, clearly in crisis, eating some melted ice cream. And we were talking to her about, hey, you know, we can get you into a shelter bed today. We can get you into a detox bed today. And, you know, she was kind of interested, but more than anything, she was afraid. Mm. And so nothing ended up happening. We just left her there because there's really nothing that we can do. You know, because the law says we can't intervene, uh, even though she's clearly in crisis um, because of her civil liberties, which mm -hmm. I understand to an extent. Mm -hmm. But, you know, she's not going to last much longer out there. Or if she does, her, her situation is going to deteriorate and she's going to suffer a whole lot longer and a whole lot more. So where do we decide then that we're going to draw the line? And, you know, Schellenberger's book was great because it, it kind of put this whole narrative on blast. That's the mm -hmm. way I like to call it, especially on the, on the West Coast here. Put it on blast. Uh, you know, I'm making a lot of people uncomfortable in San Francisco with some of the things that I'm saying. Uh, and it's hard for them to say anything back to me because I was actually on the street and I'm mm -hmm. in recovery from addiction. Uh, but what I'm finding is the more and more people that I talk to that are in recovery, uh, there's a large percentage of them, uh, even though they're not comfortable with coming forward because of the anonymity of it all, uh, that feel very similar to the way that I feel, you know. There's a fine line between harm reduction and enabling. And right now with what's happening in San Francisco, they're blurring the lines with that. And then on the housing first side, to pretend that drug addiction is not a problem. I mean, cause that's really what it is. It's no longer a prerequisite to obtain housing, right? Because of housing first, mm -hmm. it doesn't require you to be sober. Okay, I get it. But they've taken it to the point now where like, it just doesn't matter anymore. Mm -hmm whether you're a drug addict or not. Uh, and 
look, I worked in permanent supportive housing when I was early in my recovery in the tenderloin, two blocks from where I was homeless, man. And I can just tell you right now, it matters. It matters mm-hmm. a great deal, a great, great deal. And I, it's unfortunate they're missing the point on that. In, in the book, San Francisco, it goes so far as to there was implicitly promoting the usage. You just sent me a, the, uh, a documentary that you've put together. And I think at the end of one of the pamphlets that someone received in, in treatment, they said, enjoy your high or have a good high mm-hmm. or something like that. And so That's right. wh- wh- why, why is that happening? So it's a combination of things. And, and Chief, you might be able to chime in on this one too, but it's like, so it's a combination of, there's an effort to reduce stigma around drug use, which is good. But that effort has been taken now to the point of where they're blurring the lines between reducing stigma and drug promotion. That's one issue. That's what I think anyway. The other issue is that there's this assumption based on studies that people have done, and I say that in quotation marks, studies that people have done, that there's, there's too many people out there that can't get clean. They're going to always be addicted to drugs. So we need to create a space for those people. But I don't believe that. I think that Everybody has the inert ability that's struggling with addiction to get well. They just have to be given the right circumstances in order for that to happen, right? I, I still believe that recovery is the way out of homelessness. It's the way out of this whole mess that we're in. Continuing to perpetuate someone's addiction in the hopes of them finding recovery someday without having any kind of, any, any real, anything real to offer them substantially in regards to treatment. Um, without having to jump through a million different hoops, yeah. uh, including giving them housing, is not necessarily going to, to stem that individual's addiction uh, over time. And it's not going to extend their, improve their quality of life. If you look at studies, there's studies out there that talk about, you know, when you, they did a study of, in San Jose, California, where they put 100 people in permanent supportive housing, and they watched the people that had drug addiction issues, right, to see what would happen over time. Their life expectancy did not change from when they were on the street, from the, from the subgroup that they studied on the street, it was the same. The interactions with police were the same in the permanent supportive housing as they were on the street. So yes, they were sheltered. And if you move the goalposts all the way back to that, okay, then you can say that housing first works because they have a roof over their head. Mm-hmm. But if they're still dying 20 years prematurely because they're overdosing, how are we really helping them at that point? Chief? Yeah, just just to kind of add on to what Tom is saying, and to, to this point, largely across North America, which has been a bit of a phenomenon that I don't really quite understand, is a lot of this we focus on the commodity or the type of drug, and we don't focus on the people using the drug, and and as a result, it's it's creating some problems in relation to sorting the system, having some accountability in the system to actually get the people what's going to make them successful. And that's what I think Tom has articulated very well. And even with that said is, then there's another narrative out there right now, what people are talking about safe supply and what a lot of people might think safe supply is a medical treatment or medical intervention, but that's not common across the country. There's medical, there's, there's some that call safe supply as a drug user's liberation or whatever it is, is going to regulate that. So the drug users regulate the drug industry. Mm-hmm. That's dangerous. Now, I don't think anybody, certainly from law enforcement, you know, and what's worked in Portugal, the use of sublocate, you know, suboxone and, you know, Tom mentioned oxycodone, uh, you know, those are, those are where we learned our lessons that started years ago. And now we're into fentanyl. There's always going to be a new drug. 
but the point is, is the system needs a continuum of services to actually function as a system. If you say housing is the answer and that's what you're going to strive for, housing first, that is saying housing is the solution. If you say that, you know, um, uh, basically some type of interim intervention is the solution and that's all you focus on, then that's the solution you drive for. If you say safe consumption uh, is the solution, then what you're really saying is if that's your only solution, the answer is to give people more drugs and eventually they're going to figure it out. The point is there is no system. And that's what mm -hmm. Tom has been saying. We've got parts of a system that aren't connected. And in that system, nobody's actually focusing on what it is the individual needs to create success at that given time. And there's a lot of people that are at different steps along that path. And it shouldn't matter where you are. The criminal aspect is one thing and there should be accountability to that. But if in relation to, let's just say somebody with a simple possession charge, pick a drug, uh, what can you use as a mechanism to give that individual a choice? And what kind of accountability comes with that choice? So in the U.S., when they decriminalized in Oregon, they tried to make it a traffic ticket with a phone number. Well, that to this point isn't really uh, working as based on the analysis, but it's not something that maybe has enough accountability to it. The premise or the idea could be good, but you can't just jump from A to B to D to Z without these things in place. And that's what everybody tells us. And I studied the Portugal model and everybody wants to talk about that, but there's more accountability in the Portugal model than anywhere in Canada. And there's more accountability and it's still against the law. It's just that they have options to deal with it in a different way other than the criminal justice system. And my hope, and I, I see the government of Alberta taking some really good steps here, things that they're doing that are really uh, refreshing to what I've seen, having been on the Mental Health and Addictions Council. You know, one of those things is now having 24-7 access to addiction treatment services. They have that here. Now, it's, it's virtually, but it's a doctor on the other end. And Dr. Day, I was on a conference call with him today. That's how we start to bend the curve. That's how you start to drop overdoses. That's how but to, on, in support of that, to with Tom's point, and I, I don't, uh, Tom, if I'm wrong in what you're saying is, you need the continuum of services to have a recovery-oriented system before you have success. And right now, drastically under um, uh, underserviced is that addictions piece and, mm -hmm. and how you actually uh, get people on, into a road of recovery. Yep. And, and if I could just add really quick on what Dale was saying. Oh. There's also deep ideological differences at every stage yeah. around addiction treatment, mental health treatment, housing, and and law enforcement, and bringing those those parties together is really a challenge. I like I maybe I'm too optimistic. I like to think that that's possible because in Portugal they kind of all have the same ideology around this. I talked to Doctor Gulau in Portugal at one point too. Uh, but, you know, that's never going to happen in the United States. We're just way too, you know, politically tribal in the United States. Uh, I can't speak for Canada, but in the United States right now, we're more divided politically and ideologically than I can remember in all the time that I've been around. Yeah, it's interesting. The Portugal model, I think people conflate um, legalization and decriminalization as a, as a general statement. 
the ideology piece as a person who's not a subject matter expert has always confused me um, in the sense, and it was interesting that recovery or abstinence side of the equation. So if, if you believe abstinence is the only way versus you believe that harm reduction is the only way, you know, P Portugal, they have a continuum of care where there is no one size fits all. It's harm reduction, it's prevention, it's recovery, and it's treatment. And those are need to be implemented, I think, here. But what's inhibiting that are ideological positions and it's very emotional uh, positions by certain stakeholders that are really preventing um, better outcomes um, for what is not I mean, it's obviously a, a significant complex issue, but there are solutions at hand. And Tom, you said in the documentary about, you've just been amazed at how few innovations have taken place in this space. And I, I completely agree. And the other thing in, the, in Schellenberger's book around ideologies is that psychiatrists are not allowed to talk about long-term secure residential psychiatric treatment beds. And, you know, I was in Seattle uh, in November with my wife. And it's quite apparent that people who are homeless, generally speaking, that we saw in Seattle are severely ill, mentally ill, and suffering from severe addiction. The, the drugs that are on the market now are so much more addicting. And, you know, whether it's meth or fentanyl or combining of drugs, the people that we saw really need to be supported by medical professionals and to leave them on the streets, I think is uh, dehumanizing to them. And I, I don't understand. And maybe one of you guys can chime in on this, why it is such an emotionally charged issue. I understand families with loved ones who have lost a loved one that I understand that. Um, I think though, that the larger voices are the ones whether they be academics or whether they be um, working within the space itself for not-for-profit charitable organizations are, are, are the ones purporting to help yet are really the ones that are sometimes the barriers to that. And so wondering if both of you guys could speak to the community-based organizations and the academic side of this equation and, and what, what that's doing to the overall homelessness, I'll put in air quotes, situation that's taking place in our cities. Uh, yeah, I can go first, Dale. Uh, so, okay. It's actually a really great question. And it, I don't think there's an easy answer to that. So I, I think, you know, if I had to really step back and think about all the academics that, that are so emotional and they push so hard and the Drug Policy Alliance, they push so hard, the Harm, National Harm Reduction Coalition, they push so hard and they're, they're nasty about it. Like they use bully tactics and everything. Yes. I mean, it's like, man, it's it's rough out there. So I when I decided to get into this, man, I got educated really quick. I had to grow a thick skin mm. because I'm on Twitter and that's the gaslighting <laughs> social media yeah. platform of the world, you know? Uh -huh. Uh -huh. So uh, the best answer that I can give to you is that they're dealing with everybody who from a perspective of they've already been victimized uh, and mm -hmm. they're not necessarily dealing with them when they're already on the other side after they've recovered or they're in recovery or they're not dealing with them before they fell into the addiction. So they're only seeing these people when they're at their worst, right? Mm -hmm. And when they're at their sickest, they're on the right. street. 
And you see that over and over and over and over. And you do see them getting victimized and people do get victimized on the street. There is, it's true, Mm -hmm. right? But I think if you just stay in that space all the time, helping in that space all the time, uh, and then that's all you read and that's all you hear about and that's all you learn in school, I think that that, you know, it drives this ideology Mm -hmm. uh, and it drives the emotional charge around, around how they're so passionate about what they do. And I respect that. Right. But for someone in recovery, like myself, who's on the other side, mm-hmm. I just, I, all I try to do is put the message out there that you, you don't always have to stay in that space as someone who's struggling with addiction, which also means that people that are making drug policy decisions as an example, or service providers don't always have to live in that space either. It's okay for them to look at the outcomes and then interact with people on the other side and try to learn uh, I think like best practices mm-hmm. and everyone's story is going to be different. And I think what's hard is that when you stay in that space and you stay in that kind of victim space right there, um, anything that's trying to help that's outside of just that little framework that you've developed within that space, you're going to denigrate, which is why you're seeing a movement now on social media against like 12 step as an example, right. which is abstinence based. And I, and I just want to say too, that, you know, I used harm reduction and abstinence to get, to get well. When I went to jail in San Francisco, they gave me Suboxone to kick my heroin withdrawals. Mm-hmm. I, I did it for five days. It was a five-day taper, and that took care of the physical withdrawals. And after that, everything was up here and in here. Right. Right. And that's where, you know, three months in county and then a six-month inpatient program helped address those issues. Right. And now I'm, I've made the choice to be abstinent from drugs and alcohol. Right. 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 But that's not the only pathway to recovery. Yeah, no, I appreciate you you saying that. I think that's a it's an important point that people need need to hear, and um, I don't think hear enough. Dale, did you want to jump in? Well, nothing like wouldn't expect anything else for you to go third and long and get right into civil rights right off the hop. But uh, <laughs> uh, you know, I think the thing is that when you look at it on the positive side of the house, I think most people want to help. So I think if we blend that common understanding most people want to help, um, you know, but when you're looking at civil rights, then it gets a little clouded. And the, and the thing right now, and Tom's alluded to it a couple of times is social media is not helping this space because that's mm-hmm. where the negative aspect want to take down uh, the regime, want to take down every system, break everything down. And, you know, reality is, is I think there's only 2% of Edmontonians uh uh, that are on Twitter, but I think at the end of the day, in a city of a million people, most people think that everybody's on Twitter because right, yeah, eventually it gets paid to right, and a lot of those people aren't from Edmonton. So, when you actually look at that, to me, th- this is where the professional expertise needs to step up along with the lived experience. And they got to get to the common thread and that common thread and that common good is about safety. It's about safety of the individual. It's about safety of communities. And it's not one at the expense of the other. If you talk, if you think about what Tom is talking about, addiction is usually fixed. And he, I think he's like this and this, this and this. Mm-hmm. It's from the inside out, not from the outside in. But when you actually talk about that and you talk about it in a different context and around lived experience, I think this part that's also forgotten in here is the lived experience voice of those in the community who are at the expense of all this stuff happening and losing their, what they want as a quality of life. 
the expense of the business community, if you're talking about downtown Edmonton, where, you know, it's not an ideal spot right now that people don't want to go to because of the high addiction issue. So mm-hmm. when you put all those things together, that's all about leadership. We have to lead because not everybody's going to agree with everything that needs to be done. But if you operate from a perspective of you're trying to look after inner safety and you have multiple voices at the table and multi-professions making the decisions not in isolation, there's a chance that you're going to err on the side that's most likely right. When you make these decisions in one sector or in one silo uh, and you don't take into the broader context of what that actually means, that's when you end up in this. And a lot of this stuff comes after a crisis, they make a bad decision and we run and we throw money at it and we throw an infrastructure around it. And then we figured out what what we forgot that we weren't even trying to fix. And as a result, Mm -hmm. we have something worse than it maybe once was. So it's not rocket science, but at the same time as it needs leadership and it needs leadership with high EQ. And what I mean by high EQ, there's lots of intelligent people. I think Tom referred to it as academics and there's lots of intelligent academics but we also need the EQ, which is the practitioners combined in that with the lived experience to get to the place that's going to help most of the people. It, not everyone's going to be happy. But what you've learned in San Francisco, what I read in the book and what I learned from Tom, this has been a 25-year project that hasn't worked. Why keep doing the same thing faster and more of it when you can actually pivot? So we're at a critical point to pivot and that pivot needs leadership. It needs the professionals. There's a lot of mental health and addictions experts out there that they try to use their voice. And it's almost like they're bullied. I mean, mm-hmm. we're seeing it play out with COVID vaccinated and non-vaccinated. Yep. It doesn't matter what the medical folks say. There's a, a certain group that, you know, have their own view on that. And we're always going to have that. But there's been some good decisions made along the majority of people yet being alive and sensitive to the fact that not everybody's going to agree. That's leadership. What role do do municipalities need to play from a leadership perspective? Like Tom, you know, I mean, Gavin Newsom, damn, he's a good looking guy. And I've, I've loved him on Bill Maher in the past, but you know, he, well, San Francisco had a 10 year plan to end homelessness or chronic homelessness. And I think mayor Newsom was quoted former mayor Newsom was quoted in your documentary saying in 2017, we'll never solve this problem from city hall or in city hall. So give us your perspective on the role that city hall municipalities, councillors, mayors, should be playing in this space to to help the situation progress? Well, that's a big question, man, because, okay, how can I put it? So it's kind of like when you're the president of the United States, even if if you're a democratic president and you have a a conservative house of representatives and a Senate Mm -hmm. and all that, as the president, you still get to set the platform, right? Right. For how you want things to go, whether you get it passed or not, you get to set the platform because you're, 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 you're you got the bully pulpit. That's right. As as they say. So it's the same thing when you're the mayor, it's the same thing when you're the governor, you get to set the platform and whether or not you achieve that platform, that's another matter. 
And I think that's where the mayor and civic leaders can be the most helpful is that they can actually set the platform going forward. Uh, I think that the reality is about homelessness from what I found is that, look, municipal leaders don't want to have anything to do with this subject, man. Mm. They would rather just throw a bunch of money at it and contract it out to non-government organizations and nonprofits to handle it for them. Okay. They don't, they don't, because it's, it's a gaslighting issue. It's super controversial. It's super emotional and they will lose elections based mm. on the homeless situation in their municipality. Right. Uh, and, and so I think they're making, again, when you're dealing with homelessness, it's really easy to make decisions based off of fear. If you're a politician, cause you're looking over your shoulder all the time and you guys all both know that any decisions you make in fear are bad decisions, mm-hmm. no matter what. So, uh, <laughs> So that's that's the tricky part is that most leaders don't want to have anything to do with this stuff, man. They would rather farm it out to the practitioners, like Dale was saying, to handle it, right? The problem with that is that they do that with no oversight. And so you see a lot of money, you see a lot of duplicate, duplicity, a lot of duplicative services being offered by different nonprofits that are all trying to help and do good work. But if you're overlapping and they don't talk to each other, then you're really not really helping a lot of people. Uh, and then at the same time that that's happening, they're also pushing in San Francisco, at least really progressive ideas around criminal justice reform, around housing reform, mm-hmm. um, zoning reform, all these different things uh, to try to make it to be more equitable. That's the term right here. Right. Mm-hmm. And the problem they're running into with that is um, they're moving too fast and not put placing building infrastructure on the back end to help the people that they're going to make more equitable in their efforts. And that's where we're, they're running into big, big problems. So yeah. I don't know if that answered it, man. No, it's all, you know it's, what? it's a tough it, question. It's a very tough question. And you did an excellent job of, I mean, basically saying that the politicians are abdicating or their responsibilities as leaders, but wrapped around that is the societal issue of our time, mental illness, addiction, um, and so for municipal leaders not to play a leadership role is causing a great deal of harm, I think. And so, uh, you know, Dale, obviously you're in a, as the chief of police who has relationships with city council, I'm not going to put you on the spot to answer that same question, uh, unless you feel like, um, you know, confront, confronting the madness on confronting the madness, but, uh, I'm interested in your thoughts. I mean, Talk a little bit about, I'm forgetting the social safety net report that you had done commissioned by this. Was it commissioned by the city or the, the city of Edmonton or the, by the my police, police commission? By the uh, police commission. With yeah. The I mean, talk, talk about how you help enable leadership at political levels, at the community level in, in your role as police chief. Well, I mean, it, it's that whole change principle. And I think it is, uh, you know, how do you eliminate ignorance? It's through knowledge, right? Uh, and it's not that anybody's being ignorant, but it's that's the way that you actually start to talk with the factual piece. So back on my last job, and certainly as a senior bureaucrat uh, with the transformational change file, you, you know where the money in the system is. And mm-hmm. we commissioned a study by our commission. We hired a third party. We had the help of government, uh, some chief of staffs sitting on that, as well as uh one of our housing, uh, major housing um, organizations. And so we did that, we tracked the money and you know, seven and a half billion dollars a year in the social safety net in our city. Mm-hmm. Uh, largely most biggest funders, the province, second biggest funder is a combination between the city and the federal government. 
And a long story short, and then you ask yourself, well, what outcomes are we getting? So it gets to Tom's point is there's a lack of clarity of what success looks like, and there's a lack of clarity what the goalposts are. And, and it's kind of, I always use the analogy just for Tom's purposes, because you've probably heard me say this, Mark, it's if you play a game of risk and you put an army on every country, what are you? You're the first out of the game. But we're putting an army on every little spot here and we're not getting the results we want because there's really no focus. And some of the things in relation to that and what that means, and one of the things that we are hoping more with that report is every city has a housing strategy, every city has a homeless strategy, every city has a poverty strategy, every city has a mental health strategy, mm -hmm. every city has an addiction strategy. And I could go on probably for five minutes. Mm -hmm. And 80% of the people in each of those strategies are the same people. There's nothing that actually looks at a recovery oriented system for the vulnerable populations that overrepresent or overuse the services to create a successful environment, which is really what a recovery oriented system is a continuum of services. When we actually get a continuum of services, we'll still need the people, there'll still be jobs, but what we would have is a system versus a bunch of silos and, uh, and unfortunately many times organizations going in a different direction. So we had to change the way we policed, you know, and that's, we changed because policing is changing and we started way pre Minneapolis events. And that was to actually two things drive police work. It's basically um, the social disorder stuff. And then there's the crime. And the reality is, is a lot of this stuff can be taken out of the justice system with a different approach. And this stuff, actually, you need to use the justice system to actually get rehabilitation. The problem is, is when you put them all together and you go into a jails, which I was in charge of corrections, when you mix the low risk and the high risk, they all become high risk. So if you haven't addressed the intake of the system, what you actually do, it's like running an educational institution and you're just increasing the problem. So two things matter, reduce intake, Make, and make sure every off-ramp works. What's an off-ramp? Income assistance, bail, bail remand, mental health, addictions, child welfare, and the list goes on. As governments, generally all we measure is what we put into the system. Nobody measures funds of what they get out of the system to create independence for individuals to be successful, which is the recovery position. So it's just a rethink to systems approach. And I think the cities, back to your question, are the perfect example to broker the resources mm -hmm. rather than just point the fingers and say it's about money. There's more than enough money, but somebody has to have the leadership to put all these things together. So in the U US, you have state, you have city, you know, and you have obviously the federal here, it's federal, provincial, and city. Problem is, is they're not all going the same direction. And as a result, policing gets a lot busier because we're the 24 seven service that goes to a lot of these calls. So if we don't have a different mechanism or way to deal with both of these systems, it disproportionately goes into the justice system, which is not going to fix this and traditionally has failed. That's why we repositioned a bunch of money and a bunch of our budget and a bunch of our positions to partner with the organizations that measure stuff to take stuff out of the system and measure the heck out of it. And, and we're finally seeing some big success. Now, it's going to be a challenge with some of the recent events that we had take place in our community to Kenya to go because we're going down the route similar to some of the things that the US and on the call with the major city chiefs yesterday, as I mentioned earlier, before we got on the air, 
all those problems are now they've lost a lot of the gains they had. And some are saying everything from recruitment and losing people to the gun problem to the, the violence problem has maybe put them back anywhere from three to seven years. That's wow. what we try to stop to avoid. And I think Tom could probably speak of that firsthand with some of his knowledge. So I'm, I'm an optimist just as a guy that, you know, has been through too much, man. I'm, I'm optimistic now about life in general. Uh, do I have a lot of hope that San Francisco can turn it around? Um, not in the current political climate, but potentially in the future, it, it's always possible. Um, and the way it's hard, you know, like I'm making my move right now. So I, I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a liberal, I'm a Democrat, right. But I'm a moderate Democrat and I've always right. have been. And I feel like that right now, the next decade, this is the time for moderates in this country to kind of step up in the United States and try to, to, kind of tamp down the extremism on both the far left and the far right yep. because they have both reared their ugly heads over the last five years in the United States to great detriment to our country. Right. That's the way mm -hmm. I see it. Mm -hmm. So it's, you know, kind of like led by my generation, Gen X, you know, we're like 50 years old. Okay. It's time for us to step up and try to, you know, bring us back to the middle a little bit where we can have some cooperation. I I'm hopeful that San Francisco can do that over the next decade. Um, but when you talk about like systems, like the chief was talking about and mm -hmm. all these different things, I just want to give you one specific example in San Francisco as to why we have such a huge crisis. And this has to do with our district attorney's office and the superior court. And you know that we're in the middle of doing a recall. We're going to recall our district attorney on June 7th this year. He will be mm -hmm. recalled. Mm -hmm. And he's one of the most radical district attorneys ever elected anywhere in the United States, maybe the world. I don't know. Mm -hmm. um, and he's really driven a wedge into San Francisco as far as how we approach criminal justice, how we approach the addiction crisis, the drug crisis, the overdose crisis, the whole thing. Um, we used to use drug court a lot in, in mm -hmm. San Francisco. Someone gets arrested for drug possession, even drug dealing, if maybe they were also a user at the same time, they'd get referred into diversion and get sent to drug court. And uh, that drug court usually, at the, you know, a few, just a few years ago, that meant inpatient rehab for most people. Right. And so one of the benefits of inpatient rehab, if you're homeless, is that it gets you off the street. You're no longer homeless. Right. That's how my homelessness ended. Mm -hmm. So I was actually, you know, I count the time I was homeless as jail, too, because you're homeless in jail, too. That's, that's how they count it. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, so then I, I went to a six month inpatient program through the Salvation Army and that program ended my homelessness. OK, mm -hmm. because my homelessness was was caused or perpetuated by my addiction to heroin and fentanyl. OK, so now you're homeless, you get arrested, you go to diversion, they send you to drug court and drug court in San Francisco used to mandate you to inpatient treatment. Now what they do is they send you to assisted outpatient treatment, which okay. is, you know, two, three hour classes, you know, three hour class twice a week. Right. And then they release you mm. back into homelessness. So now you have to fulfill your requirement to go to, you have to go to AOT, assisted outpatient treatment. You're homeless and you have to go to a three hour, you know, uh, uh, meeting or group therapy twice a week. How in the hell are you going to do that if you're homeless? <laughs> Let's be yeah. honest. Uh -huh. And then when you get released into the homelessness, there's literally 150 drug dealers. That's how many there are working shifts 24 hours a day in San Francisco. And that means 150 per shift, not total, wow. right? That are yeah. selling heroin, fentanyl, meth, and crack to you. Uh, sometimes even giving it to you on credit. Mm -hmm. How are you going to stay clean in that environment? You're not. 
So this is where we've kind of dropped the ball too, is I'm a big supporter of assisted outpatient treatment, but not as it applies to someone who's homeless. Right. They yeah. need to be sheltered, housed, or put into an inpatient treatment program if they're struggling with addiction or given a mental health bed if they're struggling with mental, mental illness. But to release them to assisted outpatient treatment and back to the street, look, chief, I was arrested six times in three months and five out of those six times I was released back into homelessness. Because it's not the cop's fault, but that's how the system works in San Francisco with our district attorney and the superior court and all that. That's not compassion mm -hmm. because every time I went right back to the street and I used, I used heroin every single time. And it wasn't until the sixth time where I, I actually had to spend some time in jail because I caught too many cases too close together. That was the difference maker for me. So that's yeah, the best no, answer I got for you, man. No, thank you. Yeah, that's. That's pathological altruism right there, where you get uh, sent to jail and released back to uh, where you were arrested in the first place. Uh, that, that's under the guise of being kind. Um, yeah, under compassionate. Yeah, yeah, it'd be compassionate. Chief, talk a little bit about how how we how we do things juxtaposed to what Tom just said. I'm not quite sure what it looks like at Edmonton right now and and i want to get to as we as we continue on talk a little bit more about addiction treatment inpatient psychiatric beds and the stigma that i think persists from decades and decades of you know deinstitutionalization and, and so forth and the book talks about that a little bit but i want to get into that a little bit after you just touch on are, are we doing similar things in Edmonton in terms of if, if I got arrested five times for using or six times, are you, are we just putting people back to where they, what, 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 what is our, what is our policy in Edmonton? Well, I mean, I mean, I think any justice system in North America is struggling with this, as Thomas said, and I'd say most of them that way. And in Alberta, <clears throat> We have a prosecutor order that they're not going to prosecute just simple possession. So those people that are saying decriminalization, in essence, we have that now. Mm -hmm. So that's not going to change anything. But I think the bigger piece to this is, to Tom's point, is what's the bridge between nothing? What's the bridge be having to go to jail? Why couldn't on the first instance have a, some type of mechanism that currently doesn't exist with some kind of binding power or choice, binding choice to get a person into addiction treatment quicker. So first thing you got to do to do that is increase the number of beds in the province. Mm -hmm. So that's one thing I can say, having sit at the Mental Health Addictions Advisory Council Task Force, they've since added 8,000 beds. So we're getting there, but you don't build those overnight. Uh, mm -hmm. You and then you got to build them by location in the province so it's not that people have access to them but again that's that's another piece of the system but and then the 24 access uh now with the dock online to actually if i go and walk out i can call a number somebody i know on the street let's say it's an attic and they're, they're at that point where they'd like help we can actually get them started immediately on a suboxone uh mm -hmm. so that that's another start. But then there's a point in that system where, you know, before you get to that whole housing model, where's that bridge housing? Where's that stabilization piece? Where's that 
outside of a jail because not everybody needs to go to jail because going back to what I said, you put the wrong people in jail. That's where a lot of your gangbangers and your high risk people are. And they're going to exploit and take advantage of it. And matter of fact, we're having our gangs exploit a lot of our homeless shelters now. Mm. Uh, that's, that, as Tom said, you got 150 drug dealers uh, a day on the street corner. Well, where better to get people that need and request the product? And, you know, it leads to a, a vicious cycle. But again, it you, you know, the answer is to build a system, but the system has to have a police uh, intervention with a health perspective, in my opinion, to get that intervention and that access to treatment as close to immediate as can, because people are going to change their mind. And it's all about opportunity and points in time. And we go to these calls. And so that's what we've been focusing on, trying to push the province in that direction. You know, when the city's position is somewhat different, they still think that housing first is going to solve that. And again, uh, and both Tom and I, I think are saying the same thing as well as you is nobody's saying housing is not important, mm -hmm. but you need a system here. And, and that system means it's got to be individual based on the need. And we spend enough money to build a system. That's it's not a money issue. Mm -hmm. uh, everybody could have built this system 10 times over with what's in the system now. It's just, it's never been a systems approach. It's been a siloed approach generally driven by a crisis or something and you mentioned earlier you, you get the fact some people have lost their sons and their daughters and that's tragic as heck mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but we should be start starting to try to figure out how we intervene with a system that looks at the multitude of issues that individuals are going including trauma including everything else to find success and and if you can get 20 percent out of the system rather than making blank statements that you're going to end homelessness in a year six months or 30 days uh maybe we should actually focus on let's get 20 percent of the out of the system through recovery oriented city then let's focus on the next 10 percent, and then let's drill 10 percent. we got to build some momentum built on success uh versus just continuing to double down on one single siloed approaches which to tom's point earlier leads to a lot of silos and a lot of redundancies <laughs> Not only are there redundancies, there's big gaps because when you overbuild in one area, when we did our money in the system, one part of the system was way overfunded and everything based on evidence, you know, uh, targeted defenders, youth, Aboriginal uh, clientele, I don't have the list in front of me when you go down that, all of mm -hmm. those underfunded. Yep. So the people that are actually overrepresented in the system weren't actually getting the dollars and the resources that actually takes to drive success based on evidence. So it's a balancing piece that's uh, got some focus and it, it it's doable. It, it truly is doable, but a lot of things get in the way. Um, some of them are politics, some of them are beliefs and ideologies, as you said, um, but a lot of it's too is that the professional organizations, the multidisciplinary professional organizations along with the lived experience on both sides, whether it's community and or person that's been through it. It's never, to Tom's point, that whole advisory piece has never been focused this way. We think that medicine or medical can fix this alone. They can't. We're in this system. It's disproportionately driving the education system, uh, disruption heavily. And in, in, so all your human services, which basically in Canada go down to education, social services, health, justice, 
jobs in the economy and you know some of the things in relation to your post-secondary institutions this needs a different approach which it's which it's this way versus this way can i add one thing to what he's saying mark um, so so look i was down here while he was talking i was on my calculator on my phone <laughs> so if there's 165,000 homeless people in california and if we use a conservative estimate of $500,000 to build one unit of housing, that's mm -hmm. $82,500,000,000. Wow. That's how much it would cost to build all that housing. The, I, the, and I don't want to oversimplify this, but you know, the state of California right now is a $74 billion surplus, budget surplus. Wow. wow. Okay. So how come? So why again, aren't we just building our way out of this? That's the question. So mm -hmm. all the progressive Democrats that have been have been running the show here mm -hmm. since Schwarzenegger laid out left office in 2008, right? How yeah. come we haven't built that housing again? I mean, really, that's the serious question that I have for kids because it's they know that it's mm -hmm. way more complicated than that, right? And not just the zoning laws and the soft cost to building stuff and the environmental impact reports, but the actual getting people from the street into housing and then maintaining that housing is way more complicated. And that gets back to that thing I was talking about earlier about Dr. Keith Humphreys, about if you're spending $100,000 per homeless resident in San Francisco and a one bedroom a year, and it costs one for one year of a one bedroom apartment is 30 grand in rent. Where's that other 70,000 going to? That's an admission right there that they know that it's way more. And that's why you now hear the term housing with services, housing with services, housing with services. But when they always just talk about it's a housing and poverty issue, it, it's it's really truly a half truth. And you know, half half measures avail us nothing. I just have to say it. So, seventy four. I'm glad. I'm very glad that uh, Governor Schwarzenegger was referenced on this podcast. That. That really made my day. So thank you for that, Tom. I did not. I did not. I did not know about the seventy-four billion dollars surplus. I did. I did note though that millionaires were taxed at one percent, and or no, there's thirty thousand millionaires in San Francisco, and they were taxed at one percent to create a one billion dollar uh, mental health budget allocation, in which Governor Newsom's mental health czar, Tom Insel, who has been on the podcast that I quite enjoy, was responsible for. Yet the out outcomes were that, as far as mental health is concerned, number one per capita spending on mental health in the country and all 52 states, yet uh, San Francisco, or I, think, I guess California, ranks 26 out of 52 uh, and 32 out of 52 for children's mental health services. So, so, so money, money is not the problem, I don't think. In Edmonton, even though California has way more money, and you can ship some over here to Alberta anytime you guys want, but if if you if you had um, the purse strings, Tom, where would you be? How would you be allocating funds in order to make a difference? Or is that just a moot point because the leadership's not there to provide um, the execution? Well, you know, if I could wave, wave, wave a magic wand, you have to understand that the end goal out of all this is for people to not be homeless anymore. That means that they're going to have to have a home to live in, right? How do you, how, it's how you get there. That's, that's the challenge, right? Even if you built all the housing, you know, the thing is that they're going to build all this housing and then they're going to turn around and there's going to be another 100,000 people homeless after they've yeah. built 165,000 units. So it's really about figuring out, you know, homeless prevention, how do we stop 
what's happening. And it's true. Some of it is socioeconomic. Some of it is systemic racism. Some of it is, uh, you know, wage inequality. I, I'm, some of it is tight housing markets like, like the Bay Area has in San Francisco. And that's all true. But if you don't elevate the issue of drug addiction and untreated mental illness to the very, very top, right yep. next to poverty, yes. being at that level, that's where it has to be. So that it will get the attention and the funding that it requires. We're never, ever going to get out of this crisis ever. So that's where I would start spending my money. I would do a statewide addiction and treatment system. I would bring real treatment on demand to the street. You remember the old term in the early 1900s about, oh, he, he got on the wagon or he fell off the wagon with a drinker. Yeah. You know, that, that comes from the olden days when the Salvation Army used to ride around in a hay wagon in New York and pick the pick the winos up off the street and take them down to the mission and get them sobered up and all <laughs> okay, that yeah yeah and that's where it comes from you uh, know well we need to do that but a modern day van so not just a street crisis response team but they have to have a i don't know what they call it in canada but they have to have a department of motor vehicles computer so you can pull up someone's id in there you got to be able to put them in the system check their social run their medical and then pick them up right off the street right there and have them into de- in a detox bed by the end of the day that's the kind of stuff that we have that I would invest in if I had, could wave my magic wand. At the same time, I would also invest in housing and build out more inexpensive housing options like tiny homes and things like that. Um, there's a, a, a nonprofit down in Austin, Texas called Community First Village. It's 100% privately funded where they built a lot of tiny homes. They got a lot of donations of RVs and, and uh, mobile homes donated to them on a 20 acre plot of land and they house 1500 people permanently that were chronically homeless. And it's, you know, it's not great. Like in that, it's not like, Oh, the panacea, but they're housed and they're stable and they have a life. And I think that that should be the end goal. Again, it's just about how we get there. That has to change. Can we just talk about briefly? Cause you, you touched on this a little bit, Tom, there is around the number of homeless people that come to San Francisco because of the policies that have been enacted there. And I think the number was something like one in five homeless people weren't born there and 50% have only been there for 10 years. And, and chief, maybe you could touch on this too, because I think I heard uh, Susan McGee from, from Homeward Trust. um, And I really like Susan talk about, the same issue happening, taking place at Edmonton. So maybe just if you could both touch on that a little bit, because I find that to be another interesting part of the conversation that's not really discussed that much. You're going to hear all these different numbers in San Francisco from, and not in the United States from homeless activists. So if people on the far left will tell you that it's, you know, 17% of the people are here from somewhere else that are 70. I've heard, I've heard that 74% of the homeless in San Francisco are, were born here. I've heard that you know 90% have been here more than 10 years. I've heard that it's really 50% of the homeless are actually from here. So what I found from being on the street is that it varies from neighborhood to neighborhood. Downtown, Tenderloin, Hayes Valley, the financial district, all those homeless people are from somewhere else. They're not from San Francisco. They're from somewhere regionally in Northern California. But they're not from San Francisco. And a lot of them are from out of state. I knew people from Chicago, from Vegas, from you know Pittsburgh and all that that had come out here too because of the lax policies, the drugs, and the better weather, right? Uh, but then you go to another neighborhood, which is Bayview Hunters Point, which is predominantly a black community. Everybody that's homeless out there, yeah, they're from here. 
Mm-hmm. You know, uh, so that's where you can point and say socioeconomics conflated with, with, you know, combined with drug drug addiction have created this situation out there. So you have to l- almost break it down that that small. So it's really provincial from one neighborhood to another as to why and what, why they're almost and what they're struggling with. Yeah. And I think the argument in, in, in San Francisco was that regardless of the cost of housing, no matter how many houses people you house they're going to be replaced by uh, a new set of homeless people i don't know if that's the politically correct term is is, did you want to touch on that tom and then dale i'd like to get your input there as well just from edmonton's perspective so what i'll say is this i went to venice beach california twice this year where they had a huge homeless problem that's los angeles okay yeah yeah. Uh, where you had tent encampments strewn right along beautiful boardwalk you know ocean oceanfront drive there in venice beach you know 100 tents right and i went there twice walked around there one o'clock in the morning man it wasn't safe walking around at night uh most of the people that are out there are under 30 okay uh most of them are white most of them actually a whole bunch of them had migrated down from oregon to southern california and almost all of them that i talked to were using meth and when I talked to some of the outreach workers that were like manning the 24 hour bathrooms and stuff that were down there, they said that, you know, it's, I said, how many, what's the percentage of people that are out here struggling with addiction? And she said, all of them. So that's what you have to think about. It's a whole new generation of kids. Uh, the demographics are changing for those who are homeless out there. So kids in their early twenties, that just don't give a crap anymore. Mm-hmm. that are just going out to sit on the beach and get high. And that's becoming a lifestyle. And that's something that we should be worried about. Seriously, we should yeah. be worried about it. Yeah, I mean, just to, to kind of add on to what Tom said, I think, you know, for, first of all, Mark, to what you put, Susan would certainly know the numbers way better than I would. I, I can give you some anecdotal stuff from doing some walk around, a walk along stuff. But it's very similar to Tom. Most of the stuff, in Edmonton in relation to homeless, when you do a walk along, um, you know, aren't from here. Uh, that's why it's so hard to, to get to a zero number and folks keep coming here. And and part of that talks about the other point that you made of where, where is the role of council or others or civic leaders is the problem this is, it's not real well tracked here. Like mm-hmm. we don't track it because it's kind of like anything else. If, if the services are in the city, they're going to come to the city. And certainly, you know, we have a disproportion of, uh, of Indigenous individuals that live in this space. And obviously, a lot of them come from Indigenous communities north of us and, and around us. But that said is, if it's not really tracked, how do you fix it? To, to Tom's point, if you don't have a prerequisite, whether you have a health number or somebody in the system, how do you get the services? How do you access what they have available to it? But it also goes to if everything's easier, everything's, you know, this is what you get when you come to the city and you don't fix it at home community, your feeder system's never gonna stop. Right. Uh, so you you gotta look at this beyond just local. You gotta obviously understand a feeder system to slow the feeder system down. And that isn't something that's tracked well enough here. And we've been saying that for a while. Um, and hopefully we'll get there. I'm co-chairing a minimum uh, standards on shelters right now, actually, as a provincial task force, uh, you know, and that's already come up in the conversation. And then we have a unique phenomenon in Edmonton, too, and, and Tom referenced this as well. 
is we have the the, the single remand center for the province here, uh, the mm-hmm. jails, and a lot of people get released here with no means to go home, and they stay here. And where are they transported? Where do they get into the drug scene? Very close, right in the downtown. So as you disproportionately, that should be as easy as you know plans, getting people plans, get them home. But at the same time, is if they are stuck here. Uh, it back to what Tom said, as soon as he got out of jail, especially if he didn't get back to some supports and you walk and they drop you off kind of right in the heart of the zone, mm-hmm. a chance that you're disproportionately going to keep going through the cycle here. And if you don't address all of these mechanisms called the feeder system into the system, as well as build the system, you don't really understand what you're trying to fix. And I think, unfortunately, where we get to sometimes is, we try to jump to the solutions before we actually have the question uh, right. And what that happens sometimes is we end up leading to solutions that sometimes aren't real effective uh, because we haven't had a full understanding of the problem. And the only way you get the full understanding of the problem is when you put across uh, lateral uh, different sectors that are heavily invested in the space to look at things from more uh, a, a bigger view than, than in their silos. And when you put it in silos, and it's not by accident that every government in North America, and I've been to a lot of them, if not most of them, always talk about, well, we got to remove the silos. We got to remove the silos. Like, honest to goodness, it's this is a 50, probably a 50-year old conversation, at least 20. Yeah. Uh, we still haven't taken the steps to actually address that. So, you know, you can't fix something with an archaic system and everybody looks at how you run a program. Program isn't going to change a system. Systematic change focuses on understanding the problem and then working on what it would take to be successful. If you built that, if you built that system today, would it look like the one you have? In a lot of these cases, the answer is absolutely no. But we just think we need, I remember this is a true story taking over corrections. Uh, I didn't know anything about corrections. I had to go out and spend a day in the life thereof and went to all the different facilities and understand it. And every time I went in there, the answer that I got from the staff in that, in, in that place, all the places, and these are really good, smart people. We just need more staff and we need newer buildings with more capacity. Well, that isn't going to fix the feeder system because they're not there because the accommodations are good or because the staffing is what's getting them. The problem is, is we're putting everybody there because we don't have options to address it in other ways. Yeah, well said. Um, I want to be respectful of your time. And um, before I say uh, thank you, Tom, is there anything you'd like to, or Chief, um, touch on that we didn't speak about? Look, there's a rising, there's some voices rising out here in the West Coast of the United States that are moderate voices that are calling for um, a reasonable approach to drug policy, uh, not, not this really dangerous you know, uh, narrative around drug legalization, drug normalization, safe supply. Uh, and the people, the voices that are rising are mostly people in recovery like myself. Uh, and we've just been, been able to be amplified by, you know, people like Michael Schellenberger. Our voices have been amplified. So, you know, one of the things I'm starting, I'm, I'm actually in the process of establishing my own nonprofit where I'm going to build a coalition that's led by people in recovery. 
where we're going to try to stand up to big, giant, well-funded organizations like mm-hmm. the Drug Policy Alliance and say, wait a minute, safe supply is not the answer. Recovery is the answer, right? And then work to create, you know, like there's progressive things I agree with, like a treatment on demand system. We need that, you know, like I had explained earlier. So I think that there's things that we can align on. Yes, we need housing. I think we can align on some of those things, but you can't, it can't just be this all or nothing approach that we have right now to addiction, to treating, you know, substance use disorder. You want to destigmatize, that's fine, but that doesn't mean throwing the baby out with the bath, bath water. I got clean because I was held accountable. Most people I know in recovery got clean because they were held accountable. I don't know anybody that got clean. Actually, I know one person that stopped drinking because they had to have double bypass surgery on their heart. I don't know anybody that just decided one day that woke up and said, you know, I'm, I'm good, man. I mean, there are people, you go, to, you go to 12-step meetings, there are people like that. But the hardcore people, like I consider myself hardcore, man. I was on the street. I slept on a piece of cardboard, you know, shooting dope. We got clean because we were held accountable. And I think that that just needs to be part of the conversation going forward. That's all. That's pretty much all I got to say. Chief, before I uh, say some parting words, did you want to jump in at all? You know, I, the only thing I'd say is, you know, I, I just want to uh, thank Tom. Uh, you know, I think the way out of this is the consorting and the willing of the voices doesn't mean there's just one approach, but it's, as you said, is we got to bring some sense back into the conversation before we're in a deeper hole than we already are. And, you know, for me as a police chief, hearing folks like Tom speak, that's refreshing because what we're trying to teach our officers and what we've changed and what we're doing here is the human component to go out and how do we keep people out of the justice system? As a police leader, that's as important to me as catching the criminal. Uh, that's created something that's been against the law. And why is that important? Because when this one eventually breaks the law and we put them with this one, they're going to end up being the same because that's what happens when you put them inside an environment for longer periods of time. So again, dressing the feeder system, you got to hit both of these things at, at the same time. That's really what community policing or community safety and well-being is about. And I think the combination for us that we're really focused on really resonates with what Tom is saying, because the only approach that I think is going to get this right is when law enforcement and public health come together. Law enforcement can reverse engineer, public health can engineer, and what it gets is police will always have authority of the criminal justice system. Public health has access, obviously, to this, but when we put the two together, we slow down the emergency room visits, We slow down the correctional facilities. We slow down the justice system. We slow down social services because we have the collective authority to get the right people into the right mechanism that's going to help them. And what's missing right now is the ability to get them health help on demand when it's an addiction issue. What doesn't work is when we send one or the other, because a lot of people, especially when you, and Tom, we never really talked about this, when you add the drug of meth, Normal people do not normal things and it becomes violence and it drives a lot of our violence. So when we actually put teams together to approach this, the police take the lead till it's safe. The partner takes the lead once it's safe and the partner relentlessly follows up and the police get underneath them to be their voice to ensure that individual gets into services. We have a voice 
of authority and we have a voice of influence. We use our voice of authority with the law, but our voice of influence in Canada, especially as non-elected and most of the US as well, we need to use that voice of influence to work in both spaces at the same time. So listening to Tom, somebody that's been through it as we have lots here, seeing what our province is actually trying to do in this space right now in the mental health and addiction space, Lord help us, there's all kinds of politics in this province for sure, but they are working towards exactly this. And, and that's encouraging from a police perspective because that's what's missing right now. So Tom, thanks. Wish you all the best. It's great meeting you. I'm excited. Uh, hopefully we get to chat again. And Thank you. Us, and I think okay. there's a lot of similarities that uh, we can use each other's voices and building some momentum on this file. And Mark, to you, once again, outstanding. I, I like that you say confronting the madness because the only way we get change is when we stand up and we say, you know, this is what we believe. We're prepared to stand behind it but also it's based in evidence and it's based around things that have worked and Tom's living proof of what's worked. Yeah, no, th well said. And, and Tom, I echo uh, the chief's statements. Thank you so much for, for the work you're doing and also for uh, agreeing to come on today. You know, one of the things I wanted to follow up with you and just finish off with is there is a silent majority out there that um, needs to speak up and play a leadership role. And I, I heard this term the other day, I thought it was kind of funny, but also very true, the alt center, uh, meaning that, you know, the fringes, right, the alt right and the radical left, as we, you know, I will call them, they're a very, very, very loud, very emotional, but very, very small fraction of our society. And then there's a large, large group of I would call reasonable, rational, open-minded people who are not ideological or dogmatic, but they're quiet and they're, they're afraid to say what they think. And this is, this is a broader comment than just about um, our conversation today. This speaks to COVID. This speaks to everything in society where those people, like I think I, I include myself in that category. I think you do too, Tom um, and Dale. You're on the fringes somewhere, man. So I can't, uh, I can't, no, I would include you there too. But, but we, we need, we need to stand up and voice our opinions in a way that's uh, respectful, but forceful as well, because I think we're, we're too quiet and we're, we're too easily dissuaded from confrontation because it's a very, very vocal minority that will try to bully you and mostly on social media because. I think if you were face to face with a lot of those people having a conversation, the tone and the conversation would go much differently, but yes, nonetheless, that's the, uh, that's the, uh, that's the battleground upon which we are now situated in the metaverse. Uh, so thank you, Tom. And if there's anything that I can do, and I'm sure I speak for the chief as well to help support you in your efforts moving forward, please never hesitate to reach out because early like everything you've said today and then the way in which you say it with um, both grace, respect, and humility um, is very refreshing. So thank you, sir.